The topic for tonight is Moses Mendelssohn. And in a course on heroes and villains, he is a perfect choice because it depends upon who you ask. He's either a hero or a villain. Um, Moses Mendelssohn was born in 1729 and died in 1786, but we're going to start in 2002. And I'm hoping that that is who I think it is. Maybe not. Okay. So we begin in October of 2002 at 500 West 185th Street, which is First Hall, Yeshiva University. And I'm sitting in the class of Rav Melech Shechter, Zichron Levracha, the father of Rav Herschel Shechter. And I'm sitting in class right in front of Eliyahu Stern. And I was hoping Rebetzin Stern would be here tonight, but she's not. So I wanted her to hear this story. Okay. Uh, I'm sitting next to Eli who would go on a few years later to be my colleague at Park East Synagogue and is now a professor at Yale. And Rav Melech Schechter, for whatever reason, brings up Moses Mendelssohn. And we're taking a course in the Hilchus Avelus, so I'm not really sure. It may have been in relation to the delayed burial uh, that we'll talk about tonight, where Mendelssohn played a role in the discussion of delayed burial. But he mentions Moses Mendelssohn and says he was Avi Avois Hatuma, the granddaddy of all impurities. To which Ellie responded, how could you say such a thing? And walked out of the room. Now, for those who know Ellie, that's not out of character for him. Uh, especially if you're going to uh, attack Moses Mendelssohn. So, that, was, that just is a story to show you that Moses Mendelssohn is a character uh, about whom you could say very positive things. You could view him as a Jewish cultural hero. Or you could view him as a very sinister character. Uh to be denigrated in the centuries after his death. Okay, so that's a little fun beginning. Heinrich Gretz, the great historian of 19th century uh, Jewish life, uh, referred to Mendelssohn as a cultural hero of titanic proportions and was involved in aggrandizing the myth of the great Moses Mendelssohn. He, on the other side of the coin, is a demonic figure in the eyes of certain the orthodox world, (coughs) responsible for assimilation, for apostasy, for heresy, for leniency and laxity and observance. Every ill of Jewish life, from an orthodox point of view, could be associated with Moses Mendelssohn. But what is fair? What is a reasonable assessment of his character? Well, we're going to spend the next 55 minutes discussing that, and then we'll discuss a, an article that just came out and Alan sent me a couple days ago from the Lair House about the orthodox view in hindsight of Moses Mendelssohn, especially orthodoxy in America. Okay. So Moses Mendelssohn had a very important point in his life where he could have become one of the great rabbis of Europe. In 1761, at the age of 32, he went for a meeting with Rabbi Yonason Ibishitz in Hamburg-Altona. And the purpose of that meeting was potentially to confer smicha on Moses Mendelssohn, make him a rabbi, give him the title of Morenu. But it didn't work out. In the end, not only was he not made a title of Morenu, he wasn't even given the title of Chaver, which Ibishitz felt would be beneath Mendelssohn's dignity. Instead, he just gave him blessings that he should have a successful career as an intellectual. So, Mendelssohn wasn't yet married, and 
did not know what direction he was headed in life, had already been a public intellectual for about seven or eight years, but had been within the rabbinic orbit. And so the only question is, what's going to be the next stage of life? What will, what, what, what will his career be? As a member of the rabbinic elite, part of the establishment, or outside of the rabbinic establishment? And ultimately, he'll be outside. So let's not go back in time. No, no, no. He, 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 it wasn't given to him. It wasn't offered. There was the possibility that it could be offered, and he went with the, with the chance that it was going to happen, but Ibishitz decided not to give it to him. Disappointment. Big disappointment. But how much rabbinic training did he oh, have? Oh, right, so let's see. He had plenty. Mendelssohn was born in 1729 in Dessau. His father was a, was a sofer, was a Torah scribe came from a prestigious lineage on his mother's side. He was a descendant of the Ramah, Ramah Shesilis, and was named after the Ramah. He learned in Dessau with the town rabbi, Rabbi David Frankel. Rabbi David Frankel is famous for authoring what commentary? The Korban Eida. On what? On the Yerushalmi. And nobody knew that because it was the Yerushalmi. Now, if it was the Babli, half the hands would have gone up and he would have said what it was. But the Korban Eida is uh, one of the major commentaries on the Yerushalmi. In 1743, um, Frankel becomes the chief rabbi of Berlin. And Mendelssohn, as a 14-year-old boy, follows his Rebbe to Berlin. When he gets there, he has a problem. This is an apocryphal story, but it's probably a true story. Uh, The Jewish guard at the gate of the city refused entry to Mendelssohn on the grounds that there are strict regulations pertaining to what kind of Jews can be in this city. And if you're a 14-year-old with no means of support, and you're just like one of the Luftmenschen, you don't get in. It was only once he could prove that he was associated with the, with the newly installed rabbi and would be a student in the yeshiva, that he was allowed entry into Berlin. While in the yeshiva in Berlin, he is immersed in rabbinic studies, as would be the case of any yeshiva student. But he also is introduced to other uh, courses of study by contemporaries of his who are slightly older and who know other things. For example, Israel Zamosk introduced Mendelssohn to medieval Jewish philosophy. Abraham Kish introduced him to European literature. And Aaron Gumper has introduced him to natural sciences. These are the kinds of topics that if you're a typical yeshiva student, whether of 250 years ago or even of today, in a more cloistered environment, you never study, you'll never know exist. But he had friends who were more open to other uh, sources of knowledge, and he gravitated towards those subjects. It helped that a year before his arrival in Berlin, the Morin Nevuchim was republished for the first time in centuries. Now, the Moran of Uchim, The Guide to the Perplexed by Maimonides, is a controversial book. And in the 800 and some odd years since it was written, it's had its ups and its downs in terms of popularity. But it's been criticized heavily, and there were times when it wasn't available for European Jewish uh, consumption. It was reprinted. Mendelssohn loved it. He became addicted to the study of philosophy, and he even, uh, not jokingly, seriously, credited Maimonides and Maimonides' books 
with giving him, Mendelssohn, a crooked back from all the hours of reading that he would curl up in a ball with the book and he became uh, hunched over because of his obsession with his voracious appetite for reading philosophy. He even spoke about it in in quasi-erotic terms that he would make love to philosophy. So, the early Haskalah, as this is known, these characters who were friends of Mendelssohn are the early Haskalah. It's not a movement. It's not planned. It's just isolated individuals who are interested in subjects beyond Talmud and Halakha and who translate these works into a pristine Hebrew as opposed to the rabbinic jargon. Anyone who studied rabbinic literature knows there's a big difference between the type of Hebrew you read in, in the Rishonim, or the, especially the Akronim, versus the type of Hebrew you read in Maskilic literature. One is a pure language, the other is quasi-Aramaic gibberish sometimes. And that's what was being cultivated by the early Maskilim was good quality language and subjects beyond Talmud and Halakha. What made Mendelssohn different from the other Maskilim, the early Maskilim, is that he ventured beyond just the Hebrew language and the natural sciences and philosophy, Jewish philosophy, into the world of general culture, German literature, and secular or mundane, not particularly Jewish philosophy. Yes. Oh, he studied Spinoza real good. And he will spend part of his career defending Spinoza from accusations of atheism and with a full awareness that the sorts of things that happened in the personal life of Spinoza, his excommunication and his being made anathema to the community, could potentially happen to him if he overstepped his bounds. So the, the uh, precedent of Spinoza is weighing heavily on his mind, even as he tries to save the reputation of Spinoza the man. Okay. Well, what kind of philosophy of enlightenment does Moses Mendelssohn believe in? He's a follower of Leibniz, Wolf, and Locke. And he believes in an optimistic approach to the world of pure rationalism, that you can come to a knowledge of God through, uh, through rationalism and uh, through reason and without revelation, uh, and that the world is the, uh, is the best possible place, that the, the cre- the, God's creation of the world was a, the best possible scenario, and there's the possibility for the ever-improvement of man. Um, he was a, an opponent of the radical French Enlightenment that believed in overturning the economic, the economic system and the political system. He felt that the German Enlightenment, which believed in proper thinking as opposed to free thinking, proper versus free, was the way to go. And that the French model uh, ultimately would destroy society and possibly eventually lead to a backlash in that too much of a, cri- of a criticism of established religion and established social order will lead to a counter-enlightenment which is romantic in nature and conservative in nature and will be oppressive in terms of old world religion being restored. So as we'll see at the end of tonight's lecture, the two great evils are uh, the non-belief and too much belief, but rather you have to have a happy medium. In 1750, King Friedrich II of Prussia tightened regulations concerning Jewish residents in his kingdom, and especially in the city of Berlin. Moses Mendelssohn is a private tutor um, because after he 
was no longer a student under Frankel, he made his living just giving lessons in private homes, he's in the lowest category of tolerated Jews. The lowest category uh, not being a very good one to be in because it prevents you from raising a family. You can't get married and bring in a spouse or bring in children uh, without uh, rising another rung uh, up on the ladder. Mendelssohn becomes uh, something of a popular figure and rises in fame by developing a relationship with Gotthold Ephraim Lessing, who was an important German uh, poet, novelist, writer. Lessing would take Mendelssohn to the, the learned coffee houses, where he would be able to interact with other philosophically inclined people, Jew and Gentile alike, but mostly Gentile. For f- the king... These were subversive meetings. Any t- huh? No, Lessing was very much a goy. And in the end of his life, he was criticized for not being enough of a goy, that he was an atheist. So, at these meetings, it's an opportunity for Mendelssohn to showcase his talents as a thinker in the presence of non-Jews, and to cultivate relationships with important uh, members of the non-Jewish elite. In 1754, Lessing wrote an important work called The Juden, The Jews, in which the protagonist is a Jew who is an educated and uh, morally advanced individual, uh, someone whom you could look up to, a virtuous person. The actual person who this was modeled after was Aaron Gumpertz, who was a contemporary of Mendelssohn. And the response of Johann uh, Michaelis, Johann David Michaelis, who was a professor of Göttingen, was to criticize Lessing and say, how can you write a book called The Juden, where the protagonist is this wonderful Jew who is a morally outstanding character and an educated citizen, such a person doesn't actually exist in the real world. Now, that's a nasty thing to say, that all Jews are, are low-class, deplorable people with no education, no refinement, no uh, cultural uh, value to them. So Mendelssohn fought back and said, it's one thing if you want to say that Jews, as it stands now, are in a pretty low state. But to say that it's impossible, that not even one Jew could have ever uh, lifted himself up to the status of a cultured individual, that's totally unfair. So Mendelssohn sees this as an opportunity to defend his people, and over the next 30 years, he will repeatedly do this, respond primarily as a response to some criticism or some attack, not that he was initiating the dialogue, but he's always reacting to something nasty said about his people. In 1755, Mendelssohn wrote uh, an essay called On Sentiments, which was basically like a humanistic sermon, in which he goes uh, on an an attack against jousting, cockfighting, bullfighting, all the, uh, the vices of of the day, you know, like the NFL, the MMA, like uh, Meryl Streep said last night. <laughs> so, he also criticized public executions and offered a gory description of one that recently happened in Prussia. So, he's saying that society has to move beyond this uh, primitive form that it already has. 
He also focused on the, mort- the immortality of the soul, which after his firstborn daughter dies will be a big deal to him. The notion that when you, when you die in, in this worldly sense, it isn't the end of you, but rather there's something immortal about each life. And that his little daughter, who, uh, who died after 11 months, he'll meet her again in heaven. That's not original. No, but it's important to him, and it will, it will be uh, a key ingredient in all of his writings going forward. The immortality of the soul, as known from philosophy, not from uh, religious tradition. Okay. In 1755, he puts out, together with one of his colleagues, a pamphlet, a periodical, known as Kohelet Musar. Kohelet Musar. Which, as the name would indicate, is about moralizing it was an eight-page pamphlet that uh, uh, was put out twice, and it, it failed as a, as a periodical. It could not attract a significant audience. The question is why. Well, Kohal Musar was not subversive in content. It was just nice Hebrew language articles about the Bible, about Hebrew language, about Musar, about ethics. Nothing really um, controversial in the content. However... It was controversial insofar as two maskilim, who are not rabbis, arrogate to themselves the role of moral voice in the community, which had had thitherto only been the province of the rabbis, the magidim, the the Kabbalists, and the like. Someone with an official position in the the rabbinic elite. Not two chamyankles who call themselves maskilim. So, what, what ends up happening? Who can read this periodical in an advanced Hebrew for the most part, only the rabbinic elite, and they're against it. So it's not going to uh, uh, it's not going to sell well. You're not going to get too many subscriptions, and that's why it fails. What does Mendelssohn encourage in these in these uh, pamphlets? He wants people to appreciate God's greatness not only through religious text, but also through an understanding of nature and getting out into nature. He says that uh, religion should not instill fear of punishment or blind obedience, but rather love of God and love of observance. And that the ideal man is the bourgeois family man who earns a living, learns Torah, and also enjoys life. How can you argue with that? Okay. Oh, sure. He was religious all through his life. He would invite people to his salon, high-ranking Gentiles, and stop in the winter at 426 to Davin Mincha and come back ten minutes later. Can you imagine that today? I don't know. Is that plug? Before the Shkia. Before the Shkia. So, in 1761, Moses Mendelssohn was made a spokesman of the Berlin Jewish community. It was during the height of the Seven Years' War. And as a good Prussian resident, I say resident and not citizen, because Jews are not citizens of the nation at this point, he has to be a cheerleader for the Prussian uh, war effort. And he does so. He plays the game the right way to keep his community from harm. And in 1763, when the war is over, he uh, writes on behalf of the rabbi a peace sermon which extols Prussian victory, but at the same time uh, values the uh, idea of peace and not going to war again foolishly over nonsense. Um, the Seven Years' War resulted in the rise of a wealthy Jewish elite in Berlin. They made their money in currency uh, as minters. 
And this will be important because going forward, Mendelssohn, who up to that point had been uh, on the, the bottom rungs of the socioeconomic ladder, comes as a yeshiva boy at the age of 14 and doesn't really have uh, much means, will hobnob with the highest ranking of Jewish society and eventually join them as business partners in a silk factory owned by the Bernard family, where he goes from being the accountant to eventually being a partner in the firm. So from an employee to being one of the bosses. In 1762... He meets, or in 1761, he meets Frommet Guggenheim, who lived in Hamburg, and he falls in love with her. She was eight years younger than him. At the time, he was 32. She was 24. A year later, they get married. What's unusual about this? How did people typically find a spouse in 1760s Jewish life in Europe? Shadchanim. And it wasn't like they met the girl on a dating website or at the market. All right, this was an, uh, these were arrangements, and yet with Me- Moses Mendelssohn, he was already getting on in years in terms of the Shiduchim, and he met a girl he liked, and he fell in love with her, and he wanted to marry her. He wrote to his, his friend uh, during their engagement about his uh, fiancée, quote, The woman I wish to marry has no means, is not beautiful, and is not learned, yet I'm so much in love with her. Yeah, well, so it goes to show you that love is blind. It's You know, you, you can't argue with these things. Um, it was a personal choice. It wasn't a social ritual. It's a good name. From it. From Guggenheim. Guggenheim. Well, but it, she wasn't from a wealthy family. Um, she began to study the various secular disciplines in order to catch up to her fiancé and then husband intellectually. He discouraged that and said it's not necessary. Now today, that would be frowned upon as being you know, patriarchal and misogynist, but in, the, in those years, it was perfectly acceptable for the husband to suggest to the wife that you don't need to, to read the books too much. There was, a problem, there was a problem in allowing the marriage to go forward. They needed to secure a residency permit, a kiyum or kiyumim, for an outsider from Hamburg. And it was not an easy thing. It delayed the marriage by a few months, but finally they were were able to get the necessary permits. The next step was to elevate Mendelssohn above the low ranking in the the legal order of of permanent residency and make himself a protected Jew, a Schutzjew, Schutzjuden. For that, he needed to apply to the government. And he wrote a letter to Friedrich II, to the king, asking for a higher level status. Now, he was reluctant to do that because in general, Moses Mendelssohn throughout his life did not try to leverage his fame for personal advancement, for personal legal advancement. He felt it to be distasteful. He wanted to be a citizen of a country because Jews, as a matter of right, should be all citizens of the country. Not that he should be somehow be special because he writes uh, philosophic works and is a celebrity. But... His wife was eight months pregnant and he was pressured, you've got to do it. As a, just as a matter of prudence, for your own family's sake, you've got to get this protected status. He wrote to Friedrich. Friedrich did not respond. The king hated Mendelssohn with, uh, with, a, with a certain vehemence. Uh, but the bureaucracy gave Mendelssohn protected status. Okay. His status was based on economics? No, it was not. It was based upon his contribution as an intellectual. Because at that point, he was not a wealthy man. He would go on to become an upper-middle-class uh, bourgeois type who did have means, but not in the early 1760s. What was Friedrich's uh, angst on? Yeah. He didn't like the idea of a Jew 
uh, hobnobbing with high-level Gentiles and being um, recognized for intellectual capacity uh, and cultural contributions. It, it was uh, abhorrent to him. Was there a fear of sedition of somebody like that? Well, there's the fear of sedition, but there's more just basic bigotry. An old line anti-Semitism, in my opinion. Okay, yeah. This, this world that you're describing in Berlin, uh-huh. was it unique to Berlin, or was it unique to Germany, or was this something that was happening so in other parts of the There are other places in mid-18th century Central Europe where there are masculine or proto-masculine. Konigsberg will be another place in the 1780s, which will be the center of the, Mas- the Haskalah, especially after Mendelssohn dies. Berlin kind of fades from significance. Konigsberg is the big deal. Um, Prague. Later in the 19th century, it's Vienna. But uh, at, at this point, Hamburg has its fair share of proto Um Amsterdam always had enlightened Jews. But it's mostly in the, Ger- in, in the German uh, states, in the German principalities with Mendelssohn's presence in Berlin making Berlin the most important just because Mendelssohn was the most important. If it weren't for him, Berlin would not have been the big deal that it was. All right. um, as I mentioned, their first child, Sarah, died in infancy, and this led Mendelssohn to write about the immortality of the soul. In 1767, he wrote a book called Phaedon on the immortality of the soul, and it was very, very well received. It increased his prestige in the wider world, including the Gentile world, especially the Gentile world, because it wasn't a Jewish work. It was a general work of philosophy. Although Mendelssohn is a general philosopher, not necessarily a Jewish philosopher, he is still nonetheless a very traditional Jew. Goes to shul every day with the tefillin and talis, and keeps kosher and Shabbos and the whole nine yards. He also, as a matter of family practice, was a traditional Jew. He had ten children. Now, this is bearing in mind that he got married at the age of 33, and the wife was 25 when they got married. They had ten children, of whom six survived childhood and lived into adulthood. Four of them died either in infancy or in early childhood. Um, In 1765, he wrote a Jewish work of great importance, Biur Miloti Gayon which was a commentary on Rambam's logical terms. And he suggested that Torah scholars should devote an hour or two a week uh, away from their Talmudic studies to focus on logic and philosophy. This, of course, would not go over well among the hardliners who say Torah, Torah, Torah to the exclusion of all else. He was known as the German Socrates. And um, he... Not the Jewish Socrates. The German Socrates... Not the Jewish one. He, he believed that his work, Fedon, gave ammunition and comfort to enlightened believers in their battle against skeptics and heretics. And this is not just talking about Jewish believers against Jewish skeptics and heretics, but even Gentile ones. That he is now a defender of religion in the general sense rational, you know, reasonable religion against those who are hostile to all forms of religion. In 17... Yeah, huh? So, most of what he wrote was in German. That particular work was a Hebrew translation um, and later on when he writes his, his, his Chumash, it'll be in Hebrew below the fold, in German in Hebrew characters above the fold. But we'll get to that, to the Chumash, soon enough. Okay. 
he wrote uh, a commentary on Kohelet in, in 1769, and he did it anonymously. Uh, he advocated a harmonious life of balancing study, thinking, sensuality, aesthetics, pleasure, naturalness, love, family, social justice, and religion. So you have to be a well-rounded individual. It's not enough to uh, focus on one aspect of life or one aspect of Jewish existence to the exclusion of all others. But beneath it all, Mendelssohn was frustrated. He was very frustrated that his standing as an intellectual, in which he was feted by you know, a great elite of society did not correspond to his legal status. His legal status was that of any ordinary Jew. Sure, he was a protected one, but still a Jew, not a citizen, and whose legal rights are very limited and trampled upon by the government. So this gap between the legal status of Jews and the cultural status of a man on the ascendancy, it was intolerable for him. It made for an uncomfortable schizophrenic existence. Now, in 1769... He had a big problem. His relationships with the uh, enlightened figures of Central Europe were good, legitimate friendships, personal relationships, in which people didn't necessarily see each other face-to-face, but through correspondence got along and respected each other. That respect and mutual tolerance was grossly violated in 1769 by a, a theologian from Zurich, Johann Caspar Lavater. What did Lavater do? He was a believer in the millennium, in the, conver- in the end of days, in the conversion of Jews to Christianity, and he wanted to see it happen sooner rather than later. And he, he focused on an earlier statement by Mendelssohn in which Mendelssohn said something favorable about Jesus. Not about Christianity, but about Jesus, the character. And he said to Mendelssohn in a publication that he dedicated to Mendelssohn, but was available to the general public, you need to defend your continued uh, adherence to Judaism. It sounds like you are coming closer to Christianity. Well, either debunk Christianity, or admit you have lost and convert. So he pushes Mendelssohn into a corner. Either prove us wrong, or join us. Now that's not very nice. To tell someone of another religion that if you can't disprove my religion, you have to convert to my religion? Not very nice at all. So what does Mendelssohn do about it? He's very agitated. He could offer an antagonistic response, but he realized that would not be the the prudent thing to do. So he offers a savvy response, um, an astute response. He writes an open letter decrying Lavater's trick as being contrary to friendship, to religious tolerance, and to enlightened discourse. You, you, You can't do these sorts of things not nice. He further said that interdenominational polemics are entirely one-sided because whereas Christianity is a, is a missionary religion, a universal religion that wants to convert the whole world, Judaism is not. No, Noahides can go to heaven. So we're not trying to convert you. You shouldn't be trying to convert us. That if anything, Judaism is a more savvy, sophisticated and reasonable religion in that Judaism balances exclusivity and universality much better than does the church which says it's our way or the highway. Um, Mendelssohn finished his open letter with a restatement of his absolute commitment to Judaism, lest anyone in the from side of the, of, of the equation in the Jewish world think that maybe Lavater had a point, that Mendelssohn is really a shagitz and a heretic and an apicorus. So he says, no, no, I'm a very pious Jew, I believe in, doct- in all the doctrines of Judaism. So he further said, Mendelssohn, that it is unenlightened 
for a person to think that salvation cannot be found outside one's own house of worship. Uh, in other words, anybody can go to heaven as long as you're a good person, and to think that you must be within this denomination or else you are damned to a, per, an eternity in purgatory is, is backward, very backward. Okay, so what did Mendelssohn not do? He didn't say his real attitude towards Christianity, which was what Lavater wanted him to say. The crown prince of Braunschweig, who was a personal friend of Mendelssohn, asked him, Moises, you know, do me a favor, privately to me, tell me, what do you really think about Christianity? So Mendelssohn did write back to him and said, here is what I think, but please do me a favor, burn this letter after you're done reading it, because I'll get in trouble if you don't. No, he didn't publish it. He, uh, Bra- uh, the crown prince of Braunschweig was a friend of Mendelssohn, and throughout life they were never uh, violated each other's trust. We now have the information because of scholarship years later, but in its own time, it was not revealed. So what did Mendelssohn say about Christianity behind closed doors? He said that the Trinity is against logic, that the exclusivity of the church is against true religion, that damnation and original sin are absurd, that Jesus did not abrogate the Mosaic Law, and that the Christological readings of the Old Testament are completely, uh, complete misreadings and are intentionally misleading. All right, that's what, that's what he really felt. But he didn't say that in public. All right. Lavater wrote an apology for his indelicate uh, and indiscreet approach towards Mendelssohn, but he admitted, I still hope you convert. Meaning, I, I, what I did wasn't nice, but I still hope you become a, 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 a Christian. Um, Mendelssohn was happy that this whole episode was, was over and done with. In 1771, Mendelssohn was elected to the Royal Academy of Science, the Prussian Royal Academy. Only problem is, if it's a royal academy, it means that uh, confirmation must come from whom? King. The king. And Friedrich II didn't like Mendelssohn. So although the electors, uh, the, the, acad- the academics, thought that Mendelssohn was a worthy colleague, the king wanted to stick it to him, so he refused to confirm him. And again, this was part of Mendelssohn's lifelong problem of his legal status, or his status vis-a-vis the government was one thing, pretty low down, and his status in culture and among the intellectuals was august. And how do you live a life where you're up here in this sphere of life, but down here in the legal sense? Not, it, it's not easy to live that way. Okay. He suffered, his, his health suffered as a result of this tzara, and he had an arrhythmia, and his doctor, uh, Marcus Hertz, advised that he not eat meat, consume tobacco products, coffee, which he happened to really like, or alcoholic beverages. This caused Moses Mendelssohn to go into a state of depression. If you, can't eat, if, you, if you can't eat meat, you can't drink booze, you can't have coffee, nothing, well, what's left in life? So he went into depression. He, he barely left home from the spring of 1771 through the end of the summer of 1772. He had a year and a half of inactivity and really five years of ill health. The one time he did leave town uh, in that stretch was in the su- September of 1771. He was invited to Sans Souci, which was a royal uh, um, residence, because the foreign minister of Saxony wanted to meet with him. The trouble is that he wanted to meet with him on Shmini at Ceres. So he had to consult with the rabbi. How do you go to meet a, a, a Goyesha leader on, Shmi- on Yontif? The Gemara says it's okay. The Gemara says you can, you can meet you know, in, in, the, in the theater, in the circus, and even on Yom Kippur if it's to save Jewish lives. So they, they decided he could travel by coach up towards the, the uh, destination, get off the coach and go on foot into the city uh, on Yontif proper to meet with these uh, uh, government officials. But the king, who was also at the palace at that time, refused to grant Mendelssohn an audience, because as we said, Friedrich II didn't like Mendelssohn. All right. 
1772, there is probably the most famous controversy, internal Jewish controversy, involving Moses Mendelssohn. And it relates to the delayed burial that I, I mentioned before. Um, the Duke of Mecklenburg-Schwerin decreed that because of a concern of premature burial, you can't bury a dead body for the first three days. Now, in the 1700s, this was a real concern. People uh, thought they'd be buried alive um, since scientific methods for determining mortality were imprecise. Just because this person stops breathing doesn't mean they're dead. Maybe they'll wake up again. And, you know, even George Washington uh, installed some sort of a bell that he could, could be, well, you know, he could get out of his crypt in case he wasn't really dead uh, after he was buried. So if you wait three days, you know for sure the guy's dead. This is contrary to the halacha. The halacha says, Ki kavor bayom hahu. On that very day, you bury him. So what do we do? What do we do? They turn to Moses Mendelssohn, because after all, he's a VIP Jew, and if anyone is able to convince the government to rescind this awful decree that's against our religion, Moses Mendelssohn will be able to do it. Now, that assumed that Mendelssohn had the same viewpoint as the Jews of Mecklenburg in upholding the tradition. But in fact, what was Mendelssohn's position on the subject? He felt better to wait. Pikuach nefesh. You know, if, if the scientists of the time say that there's a real possibility that you can be of premature burial and someone could be killed effectively just because you, you put them in the ground too soon, wait a little bit. Or if we want to uh, comply with the, with the dictates of tradition, then get a, 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 amend the law so that with a doctor's note, someone will be declared dead. You don't have to wait three days, but Yomahu, on that very day, as long as a doctor says the guy's really dead. Or, do what was done in ancient Israel, in Talmudic times and pre-Talmudic times, where people were not buried in the ground, they were buried in caves. But if you're in a cave, in a crypt, and there's wiggle room, if you're really alive, you can get out. Okay? So, I, that, was his, that was his approach. So he, he responded to the government, but not in the same manner that the, the Jews were hoping for. What, Mo, what Moses Mendelssohn didn't know was that Yaakov Emden had also been asked this question, and uh, there was hope for Emden to intervene with the government. Emden came down with the side of tradition. No tinkering whatsoever. Don't give me this three-day business, or a doctor's note, or a crypt. Bottom line is, when we think he's dead, we bury him in the ground. And that's it. And Emden was surprised that Mendelssohn did not immediately fold and, you know, just go along with Mendelssohn's, with Emden's approach, given Emden's status as one of the Gedolei Hador. How could you, Moses Mendelssohn, a mere philosopher and not a great rabbi, disagree with me? I'm the great rabbi. <laughs> so what, 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 what was ostensibly a religious issue ended up becoming uh, an ideological confrontation between a masculine and a representative of the rabbinic class. Granted, Emden was a bit of a maverick and an iconoclast, and and you know, and a, uh, something of a of a weirdo in the in the rabbinate. I mean, when his fights with with the other rabbis, uh, he had bizarre opinions about certain things. But at the end of the day, Yaakov Emden is Yaakov Emden, and he's one of the gedolim. Moses Mendelssohn is not. Therefore, the assumption is Mendelssohn should have to uh, give up his opinion, but he refuses. Um, they argued over one other thing. Yaakov Emden and Mendelssohn both agreed that a Gentile could go to heaven 
without converting to Judaism, as long as he was a good Noachide. But, there's a machlokas harishonim, whether or not a, pers- a non-Jew who does the Noachide laws attains the afterlife no matter what, meaning even if they come up with the seven Noachide laws of their own through rational uh, contemplation, or is it only if you believe the laws were given in a revelation to Noah or to Moshe Rabbeinu at Har Sinai, and that you believe in Jewish revelation concerning Gentile obligations. Mendelssohn took the more liberal approach that says, any good Gentile, even if they come up with these uh, moral laws on their own, goes to heaven. Whereas Emden takes the Maimonidian approach that, no, you have to believe in revelation, and that you, you observe the Noahide laws because they were given by God. Okay. All right. So it goes to show you different approaches. Right, so Mendelssohn's critique of, of, of the Emden and Maimonidian approach is, how does a Mongolian know that they can't eat a limb of a live animal because Moses at Mount Sinai got the law, or, or Jacob, the patriarch of the Hebrews, got that law? He lives in Mongolia. So it's enough that he comes up with the idea on his own that you can't kill and you can't steal and you can't eat a limb of a live animal and you can't commit adultery, and for that you go to heaven. Uh-huh. There's an argument. There's an intellectual argument to be said for that. Yes. Okay. Now Mendelssohn was repeatedly approached by Jewish communities in Central Europe and even Eastern Europe to save the day. To save the day. So, for example, in 1775, the Swiss Jews had a problem with residency laws. They were being tightened. And what did they do? They turned to Mendelssohn. Mendelssohn turned to his old enemy Lavater and said, "Do me a favor. Try to get these laws undone." And it worked. So here, Lavater had been an uh, interlocutor of Mendelssohn and uh, aggravated him over the issue of you know, convert or prove me wrong, and he apologized, and now Mendelssohn said, you owe me a favor, and it worked out fine. In 1777, the Jews of Dresden approached Mendelssohn and said, hey, listen, we have another residency problem. The government imposed a, a, a tax on us, and we can't afford it, and they're going to kick us all out. What did Mendelssohn do? He approaches the government, and half the Jews of Dresden are allowed to remain because of, of his intercession. The Jews of Poland asked Mendelssohn for help in confronting a blood libel. We don't know how it turned out, but again, Jew, Jewish community time and again are, are going to the well, asking, Moshe, help us. We know you're a VIP, a celebrity. You can get these things done. Help us. Okay. Um, in 1777... Mendelssohn went to Poland for the one and only time in his life, and he didn't especially like it. A bit of a cultural elitist. He was not a fan of the Jewish community of Poland. He met Immanuel Kant on his way home, and he fell in love with Kant. Um, in 1779, Lessing, his old buddy, wrote Nathan the Wise, again about a good Jew, with Mendelssohn in mind. And Lessing caught a lot of flack for that. And he died in 1781, a broken man, arguably over the, cri- the criticisms of his work concerning Jews. But it goes to show you what, that Mendelssohn was this paradigm of the, the, the good, the virtuous Jew in the eyes of a Gentile uh, enlightened thinker. Now we go to the Bible. What's the deal with the Bible? Everybody knows Mendelssohn's Bible. Well, you might not know is that Mendelssohn had never, any, never had any intention of translating the Chumash into German. It was not part of his agenda in life. It came by accident. His son, Joseph, was a young kid, was taking lessons with a private tutor named Salman Dubno, a, a, a masculine from Eastern Europe. 
And the idea was that you need to be able to teach the Torah, the Chumash, in a pedagogically sound way, in a language that was a pure language and not a jargon like Yiddish, with a commentary that is aesthetically pleasing and uh, edifying. So, a project gets underway to translate the Chumash in Hebrew characters, but pure German language, not Judeo-Deutsch, but real German, and below the fold, a commentary. So the commentary was known as the Biur. The above the fold was Nitivot Shalom, the Pathways of Peace. And Mendelssohn split the responsibility between him and a few other colleagues, Maskilic colleagues, into doing the translation and writing the commentary. Wait, this was a transliteration? It was no, 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 not a transliteration, a translation, but in Hebrew font. In Hebrew characters. So there were... were, were The German language, but with Hebrew characters. But if if it's Hebrew characters, that's a transliteration, isn't it? No. A transliteration would be if it was in German characters, but Bereshit bara lokimat hashamayim v'etaaretz. This was in German language, but Hebrew font. What do you gain by that? Okay, so what do you gain by that? So... Okay, so on the assumption that the youngsters couldn't read the, the, the German alphabet, but they could read the Hebrew alphabet, but they were uh, having you know, trouble Translate. translating, if you gave them the German language that they spoke as a vernacular, they would now understand the Bible in a tongue that made sense to them. Okay. In the Rabbans write, what do we like in Arabic characters and Russian culture? Well, he, uh, Arabic characters in Lush and Kodesh. Russian culture is Arabic characters. Uh, no, his commentary, uh, his commentary on the Mishnah was written in Judeo-Arabic, in, he, in Hebrew characters. Off the top of my head, I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, now, in 1778, the project begins. And it begins with Alim Lutrufa, Leaves for Healing. Alim Trufah is a, a way of sending out like a prospectus, a few pages of a book that is yet to be published, maybe even yet to be written, so that you can impress upon potential subscribers, buyers of the book, that yeah, it's a good idea. You know, you'll, you'll pay up front for a book that's going to come out a year or two from now. And these Alim Trufah were compelling enough to get over 500 sub- subscribers, and eventually 750 copies of the book were published in 1783. But these Alimu Trufa came with a price because the rabbis didn't like it. The rabbis don't like the idea that Maskilim are translating the Bible and offering a perush on the Chumash. It's not their place. Who are they to get involved in such a project? Moreover, there was no haskama. There was no approbation by a leading rabbi. We know all good svarim have what? Have a haskama on the front page. So Mendelssohn's response was, I don't need a haskama. Why? This is not rabbinic literature. This is biblical literature. Does that, does that hold water? No. Not to the rabbis in 1783 it doesn't. Maybe today, even not today. But um, the truth of the matter is he had a haskama from Tzvi Hirsch Levin, the rabbi of Berlin. But it was withheld. Nobody knew that right away. And Levin was eventually forced to retract because as the project became less and less popular among the rabbinic elite, it wasn't seen as uh, uh, the, you know, the politically sensible thing to do to be supporting it. Um, but there were certain key people in Europe who did buy subscriptions to the Biur, including the King of Denmark and the Crown Prince. So, 
It was an important work. Mendelssohn was aware of the criticisms of the Biur, and so he wrote a preface called, called Orlinativa, a Light for the Path, in which he stressed his devotion to doctrinal orthodoxy and how this commentary does not in any way, not to one iota, depart from conventional rabbinic orthodoxy. In other words, aware of his, his opposition, he takes a, a measure to stem any criticism, say this is a kosher book. Rest assured, it's a kosher book. All right. In 1781, Serf Bear, the Jews of Alsace, had a problem. Anti-Semitic incitement was causing dangers in France. So they turned to Moses Mendelssohn for help in finding an uh, intellectual justification for uprooting anti-Semitism, for curtailing it. He decided it's better for a Gentile to write this, this defense of Jews against anti-Semitism. And so he turned to Christian Wilhelm von Dohm, who was a Prussian bureaucrat. And von Dohm wrote uh, concerning the amelioration of the civil status of the Jews. If you remember, five years ago, when we first started having our Tuesday classes, that document was the very first document we studied in the very first lecture in Israel Woodmere that I ever gave. The amelioration of the civil status of Jews. We went through it line by line uh, in great depth. The Al-Regal Achat version is that the governments of Europe have persecuted the Jews for years and have made the Jews into worthless people by preventing the Jews from doing useful crafts and, and being relevant and productive members of society, the, it's the government's fault that the Jews are basically superfluous and are not uh, cultured and they're pretty backward. So, trust me, there wasn't that much success in the 1780s. That would be post-emancipation era success. So, what must the government do? The government must improve the civic status of Jews. But in order to reach that point, the Jews must improve themselves and make themselves useful by turning to crafts and farming and getting away from just money lending and, and being middlemen. And they must uh, eliminate the more uh, decrepit aspects of their cultural existence and religious life. So... Okay, so what Van Dome is saying is it's, it's the, the fault of various governments, regimes in the history of, of modern, early modern Europe that put the Jews in this predicament. But to get them out of it, it has to be a, 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 it has to be a, a, a two-way uh, a two-way street. The government is going to improve the civil status, but the Jews have to culturally improve themselves. Okay. Yes, of course. He know, he knows that. He's just saying that, that there has to be uh, a, a change in policy and in the practice in Jewish behavior in the real world. If they permit, of course. So, Mendelssohn doesn't like this. He says that um, the Jewish social and economic profile doesn't need to change for Jews to be worthy of improved civil status. That should happen just as a matter of basic decency and, and rights. We should be citizens like everyone else. And if there happens to be a change in the socioeconomic profile of the Jew, so be it. But, he argued, that as it stood now, the Jews were not superfluous. That Jews as millmen, even peddlers, as moneylenders, served a useful purpose. Society does need the moneylender and the middleman and the peddler. And even though you might not like it and say that, oh, he's not producing anything with his hands, he's not farming, the, tilling the soil, 
nonetheless, in a capitalist environment, the capitalist is relevant. And don't tell me otherwise. Well, a banker. A banker, yeah. Okay, that, that was the Mendelssohnian argument. All right, Michaelis, who had, we had seen 30 years earlier, um, argued that the Jewish belief in the restoration of Zion, the Sabbath laws and the dietary laws, prevented citizenship. Moses Mendelssohn did not like that in the least. And he took great pains to, sh- to, 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 to show that halacha was not an impediment to civic involvement. That Jews could be soldiers, could be engaged in all sorts of occupations, and, and our religious scruples did not get in the way. That goes back to Kashmanayim times also. It's not a, a new argument. No, no, it's not at all. Now, on the issue of the restoration of Zion being a problem for citizenship, what did Mendelssohn say? He said, don't worry about it. Now, what does it mean, don't worry about it? It's remote. Remote. Right, I'll read you a paragraph, and you'll tell me how anti-Zionist this sounds. The hoped-for return to Palestine, which troubles Er Michaelis so much, has no influence on our conduct as citizens. This is confirmed by experience wherever Jews are tolerated. In part, human nature accounts for it. Only the enthusiast would not love the soil on which he thrives. And if he holds contradictory religious opinions... He reserves them for the church and prayer and does not think more of them. In other words, V'tekezena in Enei B'Shuvcha L'Tzion is just a prayer with no real significance. How about that? So that's Moses Mendelssohn in 1782 espousing a position which basically says, Zionism, who ever heard of such a thing? And the answer is no one heard of such a thing for the next hundred years. But it's just prayers. It's, if, if, if life were good in Germany, it would ju- we would just be uttering a prayer. Okay. Um... What does Mendelssohn want in terms of change in the Jewish religion? He wants no more power of cherem for the rabbis, and he wants the discontinuation of the kehillah, that in a separation of church and state, we'd practice our religion to the fullest extent, but the ecclesiastical authorities would no longer have governmental power behind them, and they couldn't boss anybody around. All right. Mendelssohn had mood swings. Yeah. Yeah. True. Mendelssohn would Mendelssohn would have loved America after the the establishment of the uh, uh, of the of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. Yeah. All right, we're going to get to that. Yeah. All right, soon enough. We got, we're going to we're going to go a little a little over time tonight, but we're we're going to get to it. All right. So Mendelssohn had to deal with another possibly positive development in European Jewish life, but he saw it with a jaundiced eye. In 1781, Joseph II, the emperor of Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, issued the Edict of Tolerance, in which it was said that basically we're going to improve the situation of the Jews in exchange for them changing their educational and economic uh, profile. So, Naftali Hertz Wesley, who was Mendelssohn's colleague uh, in various projects, and a great uh, masculine in his own right, probably other than Mendelssohn, the most important masculine, wrote as a response to the Edict of Tolerance, Dire Shalom Vemet, another document that we looked at five years ago. And Dire Shalom Vemet basically said, yeah, Jews cannot lo- can no longer have the old cheder, where we just learned Gemara. But rather, you have to learn two Torahs, the Torah to Adam and the Torah to Elohim. The Torah to Elohim is Judaism, Chumash, Navi, Halacha, Gemara, etc. And the Torah to Adam is history, geography, uh, biology, chemistry, physics, and etc. You have to have a dual curriculum, and that will make us better people. 
Because if you only have one and you don't have the other, you aren't going to be all that productive. Sounds like uh, the day school movement. Well, Mendelssohn didn't like this edict of tolerance because he, he was suspicious that maybe the Habsburg Empire is just trying to get the Jews to abandon Judaism and convert to Christianity. So although it sounded good in theory, uh, he was really not so thrilled with it. In 1782, Mendelssohn has another controversy. August Kranz, a Gentile, published the, ch- the Search for Light and Right, in which he accused Mendelssohn of being a deist, and said, basically, if you don't believe in coercion within your own religion, you want to take away the ecclesiastical authority of the rabbis, which it sounds like is a part, an in- integral part of Judaism, it means you're against Judaism. So come out and admit it. You're no longer really a Jew, you're, you're a deist. So Mendelssohn, the, the devout Jew, is personally offended by this. You know, you're calling me a, 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 a apichorus? You, the Goy, are calling me a Jewish apichorus? It's not nice. So his response was to write Jerusalem, or on religious power in Judaism. And he articulated the following points. That Jews um, are obligated in their commandments, even in the diaspora, that there are no binding doctrines, that the Maimonidian uh, principle, 13 principles, is not a catechism that is binding, but rather is just one man's opinion, that um, the state gives orders, whereas religion persuades, but it doesn't give orders, and that religious fanaticism is not true Judaism. And lastly, if you, the deists, attack Judaism, Bear in mind that Christianity is the upper floor of Judeo-Christian civilization, and Judaism is the lower floor. So if you collapse Judaism, Christianity collapses as well. So don't attack Judaism. This was his last and major work and most significant. He defends the maintaining indefinitely of the mitzvot, regardless of the political circumstances in which Jews find themselves, whether independent or diasporic, but that it should be a religion of uh, voluntary affiliation, not with coercion, and on par as an equal uh, player in, in civilization with Christianity, because if you attack Judaism, you're also attacking Christianity. Okay. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Did he use the word deist? So it was used. It was used against him as a believer in a supreme being who created the world, a philosophical god, but as a denier of all revealed religion. The, the deist doesn't believe in revealed religion. So it was claimed about Mendelssohn that he was a denier of re- revealed religion. And his reaction was, no, 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 he does believe in revelation, and that Judaism is not <coughs> revealed religion, but revealed law, revealed legislation. And that God, you, come, you can come to God through reason, through pure reason, but the mitzvot, the practical mitzvot, were given to the Jews in particular at Mahmad Har Sinai or some you know, d- distant past uh, occasion, and it is still binding upon us. Okay. Um, yes, to a significant extent he does, which is why he was a controversial figure at the time. Now, but with the last point about uh, in the book, in the book Jerusalem. He basically was suspicious that every attempt to reform Jewish civilization from the outside was really an attempt to get Jews to convert. And he feared a union of religions, meaning a melding of the various religions, to, which was really an effacing of Judaism. So he said if the choice was emancipation, but at the expense of, of preserving classical Judaism, 
or no emancipation, but keeping classical Judaism, we go with Judaism. He said like this. Um, well, actually, well, I'll give you a different, a different quote. So he, he was concerned that the rabbis wouldn't like this book. But as it turned out, nobody really paid attention to this book. And Mendelssohn was past his prime. Why did nobody really like the book Jerusalem? So the enlightened people didn't like it because he said you have to keep mitzvahs. And what are they interested in doing? Eating treif. Uh, his successors were not interested in the burden of the commandments, the old mitzvot, the, the burden, the yoke of the mitzvot. It's easier to eat treif and to not keep Shabbos. So the Baskilim, they wanted that. They're not interested in Mendelssohn's mitzvah observance. The religious people in the rabbinic establishment wanted the preservation of ecclesiastical authority, so they're not, they're not in favor of what he's espousing. And the counter-enlightenment crowd, the, the romantics of what would become a major trend in the early 19th century, are, are not in favor of his pure reason. So nobody really likes Jerusalem. All right. Um, the Haskalah movement takes off in the last two years of Mendelssohn's life. Isaac Eichel, who establishes Hame'aseif, which is the publication out of Konigsberg in 1783, also establishes the Chevrat Dorshela Shon Ever, the Society of the Friends of the Hebrew Literature, also the Society for Promotion of Goodness and Justice. All the Maskilic organizations that are famous from the late uh, 18th century have little or nothing to do with Moses Mendelssohn and were established in the last few years of his life. He was a marginal player in all of that. He is not, I say again, not the father of the Haskalah. And it is a myth that the Maskilim were his disciples who sat at his feet as he was in his armchair, you know, his armchair in the salon. There's a picture of him relaxing in a comfortable, cozy chair by a fireplace with Maskilic disciples sitting in front of him like he's the Rebbe. But that's a, it's, a, it's a myth. It never happened. All right? But why do people think it happened? Because the later Maskilim wanted people to believe that since they wanted to attach themselves to the grandeur and glory that was Moses Mendelssohn. He died in 1786, like William Henry Harrison, uh, in that he didn't wear a coat. In 1785, late in the year, he was accused of being an enemy of revealed religion by Friedrich Jacobi, a Gentile who, another one of Mendelssohn's detractors. And he wrote an article to defend himself and defend the continuation of Judaism, but when he gave it to the publisher, it was a cold day, December 30th, 1785, and he didn't wear a coat. And his wife yelled at him, Why, how come you're going out without a coat? He got sick, and by January 4th, he was dead. Um, he was only 56 years old. He was, not, a, he was not, not, not that old. 56, 56. So what happened to his children? Four out of six who survived infancy converted to another religion, whether to Protestantism or Catholicism. And his son didn't, wasn't interested in studying Torah. He rejected his Hebrew lessons, and Mendelssohn didn't coerce him to take the lessons because he didn't believe in coercion. Mendelssohn married off his oldest daughter, Brendel, who later named herself Dorothea, at the age of 17 to a rich Jew. He thought it was the best for her, but it turned out she was in an unhappy marriage, and she ended up divorcing him and having an affair with a Gentile uh, Prussian aristocrat and converting to, to, to Lutheranism, then to Catholicism. Ugly situation all around. All right, the family life, with not a lot of nachas. What about the legacy? So... No, he was a very good father. He was a loving father, and he cared about his kids very much, but uh, it didn't work out in terms of the religion aspect. They, he was a good father. He was a kind and gentle father. He wanted his kids to be happy, maybe a little too happy. All right. Um, why? Okay. So the answer, the answer is, the answer is that there was a, 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 
an epidemic, an epidemic of conversions to Christianity between about 1780 and 1830 in Berlin and in Germany more generally, but especially in Berlin. And supposedly about 5,000 Jews apostatized in Germany in, in those two generations. Why? 70,000? It's a, it's a big number. It's a big number. Career advancement. Career advancement. Okay, so, so Ju- Judaism was on a steep decline in the urban environments of Germany, and eventually even in the, in the, in the, in the Bavarian hinterlands, it also was on a decline two generations after that. Bottom line is that Judaism was an albatross. You could advance yourself a lot more easily if you had a paper that said you took a baptism. So people did. And they didn't feel as they were sacrificing all that much. We may discuss in a future lecture David Friedlander and Heinrich Heine, who respectively uh, threatened to convert and actually did convert to Christianity uh, in that milieu of, uh, of apostasy um, as you know, sort of villains of the Jewish people. We may discuss that at a later time. In any event, the Reform Movement adopted Mendelssohn as a hero despite the fact that he wasn't a reformed Jew. He was a pious observer of the commandments. And in 1986, uh, Michael Meyer, who was a, the historian of reformed Judaism, uh, professor at HUC, he said, you know, this is absurd. Mendelssohn was not, a ref- not the, father, the granddaddy of reform. He was a, basically an Orthodox Jew who had a, you know, curious opinions about rabbinic authority, but was otherwise a pious observer. So why don't the Orthodox take him on as a hero? And the answer is that in the early days after his death, he may have been something of a hero within the traditional world. But by the mid-19th century, even as moderate a figure as Isaac Leeser in the United States, uh, looked upon Mendelssohn with derision and referred to Temple Emanuel as a Mendelssohnian society. Uh, he, he connected the name Mendelssohn with reforms in Judaism. And certainly the Gedolim of the 20th century had only negative things to say about Mendelssohn. In 1986... Avi Shafrin, before he was the uh, mouthpiece for the Aguda, wrote an article in Jewish Observer in which he said that Mendelssohn was a religious man. His biggest aver was that he didn't believe in Das Torah, that he didn't kowtow to the rabbis, that he had his own opinion despite not being of the rabbinic elite. And it goes to show you that it's not, it's not enough to, just to be frum. You have to be an ideological believer in, in the, the culture of the, the Orthodox world. And that, that was mo- lacking in Mendelssohn's character the Jewish Observer retracted the piece because of uh, nasty comments. Oh, how can you write about Mendelssohn and say he was a good Jew? He was a terrible Jew in every respect. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, so, in typical, uh, as Mark Shapiro would say, changing the immutable fashion, they sort of, uh, Pravda style, deleted that from the record. But, Shafran had a point that, yeah, Mo- Moses Mendelssohn was a, was a religious man, but he didn't believe in the so-called Das Torah, that, that he, he had his own opinions and was not afraid to say them. But, because of that, there's been a hesitation on the part of even the modern Orthodox to recognize Mendelssohn as uh, a virtuous figure of the past. One last story. So Schneer Lyman has a short article in which he discusses an, a, a, a legendary tale where the Chassam Sofer threw a copy of the, of the beer on the floor. What actually happened? It never happened. So in the Chassam Sofer's uh, ethical will, his Tzavah, which was one of the most famous ethical wills in modern Jewish history, he read a line that in the works of Ramad, of Moshe Dessau, Moses Mendelssohn, don't extend your hand. Don't touch the books. He was very hostile to all matters of uh, change in Jewish culture, and so he didn't like Mendelssohn. 
So a question was asked by Hillel Lichtenstein, who is himself one of the founders of ultra-Orthodoxy in Hungary in the 1860s, because his son-in-law, Akiva Yosef Schlesinger, uh, had heard a story <coughs> that Mendelssohn threw, that Chassam uh, Sofer threw Mendelssohn's Chumash on the floor. So he asked the Maharam Shik, who was a disciple of Chassam of, of, of Sofer, did this story ever really happen? And Maharam Shik responded, no, it didn't happen. What really happened was that Chassam Sofer was in a, in, a, in, a, in a community one time for Shabbos, and the tradition was that he would give a drasha, and, and the rabbi of the town would give a drasha at, at lunch, at the table, so, but, he, but he wanted to quote a Pasuk directly from the Chumash because you're not supposed to quote a Pasuk with, without looking inside. You're not supposed to quote the Bible from memory. So the, what, what happened? There was no Chumash in the rabbi's house. There was no Chumash in the rabbi's house? What? So what really happened was the rabbi had three Chumashim. One he kept in the shul. There was no Eruv. So he kept it in shul to follow the Kriya Torah on Shabbos morning. And one belonged to the Rebetzin and would be up in the Ezra Snashim for her to follow the Kriya Torah in shul Shabbos morning. But the third Chumash, which he kept at home, was the Mendelssohn beer. And knowing that Sam Sofer was hostile to Mendelssohn, they lied to him and said he doesn't have a Chumash in the house. When in fact he really did. Um, so it never was true that Sam Sofer threw the beer on the floor. But the fact that the story was even ever told goes to show you how in, in, the, in the century after Mendelssohn's death, there is this aura about him being a sinister character and the traditional world being utterly hostile to him. Right, and with that, we'll stop. Next week, we will do the Vilna Gone. Okay.